record. Hello and welcome to Live from America podcast. This is Hatem along with Mr. Norm Dorman, the owner of the legendary comedy seller. Uh, hello, sir. And can I can I just say are are you in, so we're just for those joining us it turns out that uh, we're talking about guitars so you so you know I I'm a guitar player did you know that yeah yeah, I, yeah yeah so I I wish I had it. I have a double neck I know this is I have a double neck guitar mandolin made by Andy Manson that's the guy who made Jimmy Page's double necks shit yeah he it's, made it. it's awesome next I gotta show you next time okay go ahead Hans. yeah yeah most definitely. <laughs> See how me and Tony don't really care about that? <laughs> 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 Tony had a look in his face like, uh, uh, well, uh, let me introduce the rest of the guests. Hatem, Hatem, how about That's this, right. huh? Ah, here oh, we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no has a, a nice collection of everything. That's great. Um, Emmy Award nominee and former writer for Saturday Night Live and a very funny comedian, Mr. Tony Darrow and uh, Norm's uh, worst nightmare. Tony Darrow is here. <laughs> if he's my and, worst nightmare, I sleep pretty well. <laughs> and our guest of honor, one of our really good friends, uh, a great guy, Mr. Michel Paradis. He's one of the nation's top lawyers in the areas of international law, human rights, and the law of war. He's a lecturer at Columbia Law U University an author of The Last Mission to Tokyo. Welcome back, sir. Thank you very much. Came out today. That was yes. very exciting. And I want to share something with you guys quickly before we start, because it's really uh, fun. Here you go. First day at its bestseller. <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> sir. Thank you very much. It was a, it's, it's, an honor. Yeah, Hopefully people like it. It's amazing. So how are you doing in this COVID thing? And, you know, I know uh, you've been through a lot, like me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been crazy. We, uh, so my wife is an ICU doctor at New York Presbyterian. And so she was one of the, the, one of the first people in New York to get it, um, basically due to the early PPE shortages. Um, and so, yes, she had it. My, my daughter's got it. I thought I was immune from getting it for like a week because I was taking care of everybody and wasn't feeling any symptoms. And there was this... Uh, sort of Hindu nationalist propaganda circulating at the time that vegetarians could not get COVID, which I started to believe. And then, uh, and then COVID was like, seriously, you want to, you want to fuck with me? And so uh, then I got COVID, you know, a good kick of COVID squared to the forehead. Uh, and was pretty sick for like three weeks. It's no joke. Um, you know, I'm young and pretty healthy and you know, it was, I, I it was tough. It's a tough disease. I remember I, talk, I talked to you like months after and you still haven't got, I mean, me too, the, the taste or smell yet. Did you get it? Yeah, I can. I still can't really smell anything. Yeah, um, I can, I, if I focus, I can kind of get a whiff of something, but yeah, it's can, not. Can you taste yet? Taste never really went away for me. Uh, I, I never really, although I could eat spicy food like a boss. Like there was <laughs> this period where I could eat like the hottest hot sauce and it just didn't do anything. So, um, but yeah, the biggest, the biggest drag is the smell. Which is actually not too bad. I still have daughters in diapers. So, you know, <laughs> there, are, there are worse times in your life to lose your sense of smell. Oh, yeah. That was, that was a tough time, I'm sure. And your wife is a hero. You know, she's a major doctor there. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Uh, yeah, she, you know, she works really hard. She's done a lot of really good things for, uh, for a lot of people in New York. So it's... it's uh, there was an article I, about um, the doctor. I thought it was New York Presbyterian in the Times last week. Which one? Um, the the which doctor? Maybe it's a good question. The doctor that uh, committed suicide. 
Oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah. She, uh, my, yeah, my wife know or knew her. Uh, she, she was an ER doctor. My wife works in the intensive care unit. Uh-huh. Um, but basically, during COVID, they turned the entire hospital into an intensive care unit. Um, even operating theaters were converted into ICUs, like two uh, double bed ICU rooms. So it was a, I mean, April, May, even June here was pretty, pretty intense. It's gotten a lot better now. Um, you know, New York really has come around. Just the statistics show it, but also just like the lived experience that she has in the hospital really does show uh, how right. much progress we've made. Yeah, it's very true. And but everything's of, so close too. Yeah, but it was really like Michelle was saying, like it's crazy in the hospital. Like they'll turn cafeterias to beds, like every everywhere, whatever they can fit a bit, they'll put it there. You know, it's it's insane. Much better now. Um, and that was what you, and you were in too. That was when you were in the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. I was, uh, I was uh, one of the first people as well, you know. Yeah. Would you say there was one uh, uh, floor dedicated to COVID when you entered and eight when you left? No, no. When I started, it was one uh, floor for COVID and eight for the rest of the, you know, uh, the, and then they switched after like about a week, maybe. It was all nine were COVID. And even across the, the street, uh, the, the, the women's the hospital, you know, where they give birth and stuff, they converted also to... Uh, to uh, COVID patients, it was crazy. It was really crazy. Yeah, it was. It was. It was no joke. Um, yeah. I'm kind of surprised, like the rest of the country, didn't watch what happened in New York, and just be a little more careful. It's actually kind of like shocking, but you know. Yeah, it's great. And speaking of New York Times, they wrote about you today. They did. They oh, put yeah, a very nice a review. Article. Yeah. Yeah, very nice review of Last Mission to Tokyo uh, today in the Times. That was it was a nice thing to wake up to. So, so can I, can, before, before we get to his article, can I just comment on one thing he said? Because I think it's, it's he says, why, why didn't they watch and be more careful? I think this is just a failure of human nature because at the same time, I was wondering back then, I'm like, how come we see what's going on in Italy and we're, and we're not in New York being more careful? Yeah. It's like, you got to be once bitten before you become twice shy, it seems, unfortunately. Yeah. It's, just, it's just a gaping hole in human nature. We just can't. I don't know. So go ahead. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. No, I remember that too. I remember that too. I remember before when it was in Italy and before it came here and they started closing everything down and there was just this weird, ominous sense of menace, but you kind of didn't know whether or not to take it seriously. It's like those people who stand on a beach when there's a report that a hurricane's coming, but you can't see the hurricane yet. So everyone's like, is there really a hurricane coming? And then, Dude. you know, by the time you see it, it's too late. You're, did you see the, the was it HBO, uh, the, the Chernobyl miniseries? That was yeah. good, yeah. 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 So you remember that scene where they, they, they're trying to uh, uh, relay how much radiation there is, and he says, well, it's 30 Rengen or whatever it is. And, 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 and he says, oh, it's 30 Rengen. That's not, not, that's not that bad. It's your chest x-rays. And finally, somebody says, the Geiger counters only go to 30 <laughs> Rengen, right? That was the testing. We were like, no, no, we only have 50 cases in New York City. <laughs> well, how many tests do we have? Oh, we've given them all out. <laughs> yeah, about 50. <laughs> about 50. And, yeah. and smart people were just like the Soviets. Like, okay, well, it doesn't seem that bad. There's only 50 cases. There were probably 10,000 cases. Yeah. We had no idea. When they, when they finally got the Geiger counter, it was 30,000 Rengen, right? <laughs> It's amazing. Smart that, people. That, that's yeah. so true. I mean, when I was in the hospital, it's true. There was no tests. There was no gloves. There was no masks. 
there's nothing in the first couple of months. Like I remember me with my condition, I had to to get to get hundred percent negative. You have to be tested twice within twenty four hours. They yeah. won't they won't do that because they don't have enough. You know, so yeah, it's uh, it's it's crazy. But okay, um, let's yeah, get to so, the Japanese war criminals. So about about your book, you know, I'm I'm surprised. Like I, no, maybe you're not gonna be surprised that I didn't know. But I didn't know a lot of that. What's in the book about the whole story? I don't I don't think it was covered anywhere before. Yeah, no, this book uh, really tells an untold story, which is not something you can say very often when you're doing World War II stuff. Um, yeah, it starts with a it starts with a fairly well known story um, that's been told, like it's the uh, which is the Doolittle Raid. Um, so if you've ever seen Pearl Harbor, Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor, Alec Baldwin plays Jimmy Doolittle, sort of in the climactic ending scene. Um, and so there is this sort of general sense, and there you know, been a couple books written about the Doolittle Raid. Um, but what really intrigued me about it was the after story. Um, and just for your listeners who you know, I mean, might not even know about the Doolittle Raid, you know, April 1942, the United States is losing World War II and losing badly, right? We've lost the Philippines. Um, the British have been kicked out of Shanghai, out of Hong Kong. India looks like it might fall. You know, our campaigns in North Africa are at, you know, okay at best. And uh, Roosevelt is just desperate to have a counterattack, some sort of successful counterattack against the Japanese. And so uh, the Air Force, the Army Air Forces, uh, tapped this kind of wily stunt pilot who also happens to have a PhD from MIT in aeronautical engineering to lead uh, this otherwise just technically impossible mission uh, to attack Tokyo. And what they do is they put 16 big, fat, you know, glass-nosed army bombers on an aircraft carrier. They get that aircraft carrier about as close as they can to Japan without getting it sunk. Uh, and they just take these giant planes off this tiny little runway of the aircraft carrier, do a one-way bombing run over Japan, um, which is tactically not very significant, right? They don't have that many bombs they can drop. Uh, but psychologically, it's huge. Japan had literally never been attacked in all of recorded human history. The last people to even get close were the Mongols. Uh, and when the Mongols attempted an amphibious landing on Japan, a typhoon came ripping through the Sea of Japan sending Kublai Khan's fleets asunder. And the Japanese dubbed that typhoon the kamikaze, meaning the divine wind. Um, and so they just had this you know, mythology that Japan was invulnerable to attack from abroad. Um, it was a mythology justified by history, justified by technology, right? You just couldn't get planes that close to Japan in 1942. Um, and what Doolittle did was basically just shocked the Japanese um, that the Japanese were no longer invulnerable uh, to, to attacks from abroad. And so the, the 80 men that Doolittle raid, uh, that Doolittle takes on this mission, uh, all end up crash landing in China. One plane ends up landing in the Soviet Union and they get interned. Uh, but all the rest of the pilots and, and crews get crash land in China. And one of them- Can, can I ask you, was, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Was, the, was the intention, when you say one, ray, one way, what was the intention? Suicide mission, what was it? Um, you know, I think in the back of a lot of the planners' minds, they kind of figured this would be a suicide mission. Uh, the goal was to basically just fly over Japan, drop the bombs, and try and get to safety inside of China. And that became all but impossible the day of the raid because the Japanese actually detected the aircraft carrier in the water 12 hours early. So they have to take this mission off 12 hours earlier than they were supposed to, which means they're all out of gas by the time and, they get and, to China. And the fuel, the fuel was enough only to go to Japan. That's it. Right. Uh, well, it was planned enough to get in a little bit into China, 
right? That was the hope yeah. is that if they got a good tailwind and they got a little lucky, they might be able to get, uh, you know, a deep enough into China that they could avoid uh, the Japanese army or the, you know, the guerrillas, the Chinese guerrillas who were allied with Japan at the time. These people um, sound even, these people sound even braver than some of these um, white kids in Seattle protesting, but go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> what a generation. Uh, well, they were fighting, they were fighting for similar values. With the planes that you, you said. It was the, and actually in, in, in truth, in truth, they were the original Antifa. So, you know, you okay, gotta fair enough. So uh, go ahead, continue, continue. So, so you, they took everything and put gas all over the plane, right? They took the chairs, they took everything. Yeah, they took everything out of these planes, all the defenses except for a couple of, you know, a couple of guns, um, all of the contingencies, all parachutes, everything. Everything got ripped out of these planes and replaced with gas tanks um, so that you basically have these flying gas cans with bombs at the bottom of them uh, flying on this one-way mission over Japan uh, and on to China. But what's miraculous, actually, about this, about the Doolittle Raid is um, of the 80 men uh, that, Doolittle Ra that Doolittle takes on this mission, 70 not only survive, but escape into China uh, with the help of Chiang Kai-shek, who is the sort of our ally in China at the time, uh, and return home basically the biggest heroes of World War II. Uh, people, people who lived during World War II remember the Doolittle Raid you know, as, as probably one of the greatest moments of the war. Um, to this day, uh, it's, it's largely receded from memory because of things like, you know, D-Day and all the other stuff that, um, we, we now look back on and celebrate from World War II, but the Doolittle Raiders were just these stunning American heroes because they showed, you know, they showed not only can you, not only should the United States be fighting this war against fascism, um, but we can win it. And that was by no means a foregone proposition in April of 1942, quite the opposite. It looked like we might lose this war or have to agree to some kind of stalemate. Uh, with the Japanese and the Germans. What, what happened so, to the other 10? Well, that's what this book is about. So um, three of the guys die. Um, in uh, One guy jumps out of a plane. Uh, his parachute opens, but he hits some rocks and, and dies of his injuries. Uh, two guys die in a plane crash when one of the planes crashes into the ocean. Um, and then uh, the, the remaining seven uh, are captured either by the Japanese Kempei Tai, uh, which is like the secret police, um, or by Chinese guerrillas who are allied with Japan and then turn them over to the Japanese Kempei Tai. Um, and so that's really where this story begins, is this you know, largely untold story of these seven men who uh, get, you know, accomplish this incredible mission, uh, but then really pay the price because they fall into the hands of the Japanese. Is it, is it a single pilot plane? Uh, it's two planes. Uh, so one plane, um, the guys all have to jump out around Nanchang, which at that point was basically the suburbs of Tokyo in China because Japanese had controlled it for years. And then um, the other plane is one of the ones that crashes into the ocean. Two of the crew members die. Three swim ashore in the dead of night in a rainstorm, right? So they're in complete darkness uh, when, they, when they come ashore, uh, only a few hundred miles south of Shanghai. Um, and it looks it, early on like they might make it out. There are a couple of days, and I, and I recount some of their story in the book. A couple of days go by where it, they think they might actually be able to escape themselves. But um, soon enough, uh, some guerrillas, you know, they run into some guerrilla, Chinese guerrillas who say, yeah, yeah, we'll take care of you. <laughs> and, and sure enough, they give them over to the Japanese. So what happened? They get tortured and beaten and... Yeah, yeah. You know, so the, the Japanese Kenpai Tai, even then, was notorious. Um, and so the these seven Doolittle Raiders uh, get taken in by the Kenpai Tai, uh, put into secret prisons, first around China, and then ultimately in Tokyo, 
Uh, they're subjected to all sorts of torture. They're subject to waterboarding. They're subjected to sleep deprivation. Well, uh, waterboarding is not torture. I thought we established that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a very different opinion of that in 1945 uh, when we prosecuted the Japanese for doing this. Um, and uh, yeah, and so the, there's this just brutal tortures, um, you know, I mean, are imp inflicted against the Doolittle Raiders. And there's this real debate. Um, and one of the things I try to chronicle in the book is that there's actually this real interesting political debate inside Japan about what to do with them. Uh, you have hardliners saying, let's just behead them, you know, as publicly as possible, deter people, any, any other Americans from, from doing anything like this again. Um, but you also have like, you know, real honest to goodness lawyers and, and internationally minded members of the cabinet saying, no, we have to treat them as prisoners of war. Um, and what they ultimately end up having to what they ultimately end up settling on doing is uh, this kind of bad faith show trial. Uh, they basically ask some lawyers in the war ministry, how can we execute these guys and make it look legal? Um, and the initial answer they get from the lawyers in Japan's war ministry is, well, you can't, right? It's illegal to kill prisoners. Um, well, was, that, they, was there international law by then? There was. In fact, Japan, uh, you know, did, they never ratified it. But they were actually the first country to sign the Geneva Conventions of 1929. And at the very beginning of the war, they agreed to comply with it. Um, and that's what the, lawyer, the lawyers in the war ministry said, right? You, no, you can't kill prisoners. That's a, that's a big no-no. Um, and when the, when the lawyers were told, look, we have to find a way because if we don't, the Kempei Tai is just going to kill them anyway. And that's going to be a disaster. Um, the lawyers said, well, let's, let's just come up with a show trial. So where they passed this ex post facto law that basically said anyone who wasn't Japanese could be prosecuted for committing atrocities against Japan. Uh, they get put before this hour long, you know, trial where they're accused of committing atrocities against the Japanese. Uh, they're all sentenced to death. Uh, the, the chief evidence against them uh, are confessions they make uh, to uh, uh, torturing, or excuse me, the confessions they make to committing atrocities against the Japanese that were taken under torture by the Kempei Tai. And uh, they're all sentenced to death as everyone expected. Although the emperor ends up commuting the sentences of five of them, um, essentially as a show of mercy. So three are executed. Uh, the remainder spend the war in Japanese prisons and essentially going insane in solitary confinement. Um, one dies of malnutrition and, and medical neglect. Um, uh, another one, uh, one of the remaining four almost dies, uh, is very close to death when he's, he's kind of miraculously liberated um, in August of 1945. And so, so yeah, so this book basically picks up that story and then uh, talks about, uh, and, and sort of then relays the, the next part of the story, which is the army, the U.S. Army, uh, decides to hunt down the Japanese who are responsible for torturing and murdering the Doolittle Raiders. And, uh, and how they do that is, uh, is really the subject of this book. So I have, I have a bunch of questions for you. Yeah, yeah, far away. So, so first of all, um, you know, I, I almost never finish any book I pick up to read, especially um, nonfiction, uh, nonfiction books. Um, uh, and, I, and I think that most people are the same, even though they won't admit it. But uh, one book I did pick up one time was an, written by an Australian guy, I think, about Japanese prison camps. And I do remember, and, and you probably know the book, it was, it was kind of well-known at the time, but he said at the top of it, I think it was a, it was a prisoner uh, quoting says they beat us until we bled and then they beat us for bleeding. That was the way he described the Japanese prison camps. And, and as I understand it, the Japanese were known to be worse than the Nazis when it came to, like if you if you were going to be taken prisoner, you way prefer being a Nazi prisoner than the Japanese prisoner. Is that correct? 
Yeah, certainly if you weren't a gypsy homosexual or a Jew. Um, okay. And yeah. yeah, there was the- An American soldier. A, yeah, if you're, if you're an American soldier, sh certainly. And, and there was a real cult of shame that the Japanese army kind of built up around being taken prisoner. In fact, uh, in Japan's own military code, like the, the uniform code of military justice for Japan, uh, being captured uh, was seen as a high crime tantamount to like rape and murder. Um, and so there was this mentality that anyone who's captured must be a coward. Uh, this kind of just chauvinistic attitude uh, towards prisoners that, huh. you know, ended up provoking these just grotesque atrocities. Because not you know, only- Isn't that what President Trump said about John McCain? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I prefer people who don't get captured. Um, Is that why I they find that these guys uh, decades after the war uh, living on these islands, they don't know the war is over because they've been hiding out all that time. Yeah, yeah, and and that's and some of those situations are actually quite dicey because they were, you know, I mean, some of the Japanese soldiers who were hiding out on these islands, you know, around Papua New Guinea and uh, in Indonesia, um, you know, would like still kill people, right? They assumed they were still at war and they were not going to surrender. So you had these guys living in the jungles for for decades um, and and literally continuing to fight the war. Uh, from the jungle, even though you know it had ended many years before. So here's my next question: uh, Have you sold the movie rights yet? Because this sounds like a Steve, a Steve McQueen Great Escape uh, <laughs> uh, screenplay, ready to go. I, 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 I'm, I'm willing to take any and all offers. Uh, you're you're not actively, have... you're not actively pursuing this. This is a Hollywood story. Cool. I'll take, yeah, so this, I've been a couple of producers have been in touch, um, okay. and so, uh, but I, have, I also have an agent. So if if hearing the story makes you want to take it to the big screen, contact Rachel Vogel, uh, and she's my I, agent. I, I, I think you should try to make it as real as possible and hire me as the lead actor. <laughs> I think, <laughs> well, you know, so like a couple of movies over the years have been made about Jimmy Doolittle, especially, and he's always gotten this like really generous casting. So, you know, Spencer Tracy, uh, Alec Baldwin, but if you actually saw the real Jimmy Doolittle, he was this short, kind of paunchy, bald, middle-aged guy, like Paul Giamatti or you know George George from George Costanza would have actually been a much more but, accurate. But, uh, but I, 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 Norm is right about uh, this. Now they can now movie. they can probably get a hot young black actor to play him. Now that would be good. Go ahead. <laughs> but uh, but I I think it's more like a few good men, like because I think the best part of the book is is the trial in Japan versus the trial here in the U.S. You know how they. You know, I think that's brilliant, you know. Um, yeah, but, yeah, but, it's, it was a fun story to write. You know, it's, it's a movie, it, it's a movie. It's, for me, it's a book. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the trial of a trial. Um, and you just have these, you know, kind of these American lawyers in Shanghai, China, which is a cool place all by itself for lots of reasons, um, in 1945, you know, going into court every day debating what a fair trial is. It's just a, you know, it's a really... I don't know, it's kind of actually a refreshing story, you know, given everything that's in the news. And so how, you know, I mean, we're just so used to cynicism and bad faith. Like one of the one of the nicest reviews I've gotten so far actually just described it as kind of like a refreshing story about people having a good faith argument over about what's right and wrong. And you're just yeah. like, that's kind of nice, right? Like in uh, is, 2020. Is it, that is, that is, is nostalgic. It, <laughs> yeah, there's nostalgia for you. What, yeah. what, is, what is the truth about the following? Because I'm confused, there's different reports. Did Did, that the Raiders uh, hit any civilian targets. Is that true or not? Because Japanese said they yeah. hit schools and uh, is that true? Yeah. So one of the more interesting pieces of the book um, is getting to follow the the lawyer who ended up trying to defend the Japanese. Um, and he's this guy named Edmund Bodine, who's actually a decorated wins the Silver Star, decorated combat pilot from the war, 
and becomes um, he, he falls in love with the the, jur- the Russian <laughs> the Russian concierge at the hotel all the officers are staying in in Shanghai a place called the Broadway Mansion um, which is actually a beautiful hotel I got to stay there when I was writing this book um, and he needs a reason to stay in Shanghai because the army is shipping you know thousands of people home back to the United States every day and uh, the army also has this problem of the, no one wants to defend the Japanese who murdered the, and tortured the Doolittle Raiders for obvious reasons. Um, and so essentially they cut him a deal. He's not a lawyer, uh, but they say, will you stand in as the defense lawyer for the Japanese? And he agrees to do it for entirely the wrong reasons. I think certainly expects the trial to be, you know, to, to be a potted plant at this trial and expects the trial to have one outcome, which is the execution of the, the four Japanese men who ultimately get put on trial for the Doolittle Raid, uh, for murdering and torturing the Doolittle Raiders. Um, and, uh, but in the course of, you know, preparing the case, he goes to Japan to investigate. Um, and it's kind of perfunctory. I think he just kind of wants a trip to Japan out of it because it's, you know, it's 1945, 1946. Um, and he finds evidence that the Doolittle Raiders uh, at least killed some civilians during the Doolittle Raid. Uh, he goes to a school in the northern suburbs of Tokyo, where uh, there were reports of a young boy being gunned down in a classroom as one of the planes flew over. And he, he goes to the classroom, he's, in, he's completely skeptical. He's like, no, this is bullshit, no way. This is just Japanese propaganda. Uh, and he meets the teachers and he hears the stories and he's like, you know, we'll prove that it was one of the Doolittle Raiders. And they say, well, you know, there are a few bullets that we found right after the raid. And he picks up the bullets and it's 30 caliber ammunition. And the only time the Air Force, the U.S. Army Air Force used 30 caliber ammunition in, in Japan was on the Doolittle Raid. Um, and so he's able to trace essentially the bullet that killed this 11-year-old boy um, to one of the guns that was that one of the planes uh, the Doolittle Raiders were flying was equipped with. Um, and I think that changes him. He, he comes back and he you know, ultimately makes the trial. And, th- and this is what I think makes the trial itself so compelling is that, you know, you have these two competing um, arguments about what justice is, right? Is justice about the truth? Is justice about revenge? Is just, you know, and is justice about an eye for an eye? Is it about, you know, making sure that, you know, people who are responsible for torture and murder are ha- held accountable or, you know, what, what are the costs of that? Um, what are we willing to face up to all the truths of this war? And so, um, you know, he ultimately comes back and, and says in 1946, just like, you know, the taboo of taboos, if you can imagine it, uh, that these Doolittle Raiders, that the Doolittle Raiders, you know, the most celebrated American heroes of the entire war, at least some of them were guilty of atrocities. And the Japanese, therefore, at least had an argument, a reason uh, to want to prosecute them. So it's a, you know, it's a really challenging story in a way um, because it gets to a lot of sort of moral complexity about World War II. Um, but how how it did is, they get these four, four guys? Are they like, are they the one that planned it? Or are they the one that responded? Like, who are they? Yeah, that's, that's sort of like another super interesting part of this book is how do they end up finding these guys? So, um, you know, the, the prosecution team um, is essentially led. He, it, he's not actually the lead prosecutor. They have like this pretty boy kind of be the lead prosecutor because he's good on camera. Uh, but there's this 40-year-old uh, army captain who they give the file to and say, figure out who to prosecute uh, for the Doolittle race. And, and he's sort of sitting there and he kind of knows this is the opportunity of a lifetime, right? Like the people who prosecute the Doolittle Raiders are going to be, 
you know, some of the greatest sort of post-war heroes. They're going to be almost do little raiders by proxy. Um, and he ends up running himself ragged all over Asia. Uh, he goes to the Philippines, he goes to Japan, he goes to other parts of China, trying to figure out, you know, who is ultimately responsible. And it, he, it ultimately dawns on him or hits him that the people who are most responsible are the one, are the lawyers, uh, the lawyers, the judges, the people responsible for the show trial, because not only did that show trial deny the Doolittle Raiders justice, um, you know, it laundered evidence derived from torture or tainted by torture. It essentially worked out to be the paperwork for their executions, right? When there was a, you know, it wasn't a real trial. It was a, a foregone outcome. Um, and so he ultimately puts on the lawyer, he puts the lawyers on trial uh, for conducting an unfair trial. Um, and so that's why in 1946, yeah. you end up having this trial of a trial. But I want to show you something. I want to show you something. Can you describe um, it? Because a lot of people listen to. And I what? Yeah, I'll describe it. This is uh, my Amazon, um, <laughs> my Amazon account, and it shows here that I've ordered, arriving Thursday, last mission to Tokyo. Can you see that? I can. I can. And I want, no, there's there's more to this story though. I ordered the hardcover edition, even though I seldom order anything but a Kindle book these days, because. I expect you to sign it for me when I finally do get it. Is that a deal? Absolutely. Okay. And, and for anyone else, actually, anyone else who buys the book this week, um, we had these really just gorgeous uh, book plates made up for the book. Let's uh, say Last Mission to Tokyo. And so if you buy the book this week, um, you know, send an email to contact at uh, michelleparody.com um, with a receipt and where you want it mailed. And I can sign that because I think just with COVID, it's going to be pretty hard to you know, do the traditional book signings. But in the meantime, or I promise you, I will personally sign your book. I'll, wait, I'll wait to call I, I wonder, I mean, I mean, uh, thank God you're bestseller, but I wonder how do you promote He's got to finish it. You got to promise to finish it though. That's. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, I'll finish, this, yeah, this is different. So this is different. The reason I would finish a book like this, presumably is that there's a story actually with the beginning and middle and end. Most, most yeah. nonfiction books are making a point and usually 25%, even, even sometimes after the, the opening chapter, it's becoming redundant already. You've got the point and it's just not efficient use of time to just keep reading it and reading and reading it. You've gotten what you want from it. A well, story I, like this is actually a story. So you want to see how it turns out, which is if, different. If, if I write a book, would you read it? If, if, I, if, if you wrote a book, would I read it? Yeah. I read it. By the way, no, these forced confessions... I, I always think about these forced confessions. We, we might have argued about this. You know, when, when people are arguing against torture, and I'm not arguing for or against torture now, they always say it doesn't work anyway. But then why do all these forced confessions come out of people's mouths? You know, like, whether, no, it only works to get for lying confessions. People would never confess the truth about something. So, I mean, people will, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, so, so here's, the, here's the real answer to this, actually, is that, okay. Torture is really effective at getting someone to say what you want them to say, regardless of whether it's true. Yes. Right? And that's, and that's ultimately its problem, right? That's the problem with torture is that if you're torturing someone, you have no idea whether or not it's true. And the, only the rarest, I mean, we come up with these hypotheticals or the ticking time bomb, Times Square or something. Um, but, you know, those hypotheticals actually don't exist in the real world because in order to know whether or not someone is telling you the truth, you have to be able to confirm it. And if they're the only source you have for that information, you have no way of confirming it. So there's only four people in Times Square now, so it wouldn't be. Uh, you you can confirm it. In, you can confirm it in certain scenarios where you go out. You go. Uh, they say the bomb is under the bridge, and you go and you find the bridge, and you find right, the bomb. Right, right. But 
but if we had lots of scenarios where that actually happened, uh, we'd know about them. And we yeah. have no examples of the ticking time bomb scenario ever happening in all of the, the entire history of human torture, <laughs> which can, is can quite I, extensive and long. Can I tell you an Egyptian joke? Well, don't, didn't they, I don't want to get sidetracked, but didn't they say that we, don't some people claim that we avoided some terrorist attacks with the information we got? Uh, from uh, yeah, but they've never been able to show that. That's yeah. and and like yeah. the chains of causation they make are extremely, you know, attenuated and speculative, and it it doesn't actually resolve that problem. You know, it's it, never it, like it. It's a dangerous uh, playing field to take on the pro torture people because once you're competing on that playing field, if God forbid they do prove beyond any doubt that they got this information from this torture. Now you've almost conceded their point by engaging on it rather than saying, this is not the point, you know, because obviously somebody could get information from torture that does prevent something. I mean, obviously that could happen. That's not, there's no reason. Look, look, you can torture someone and and they might say something that's true. I think the broader problem is you, you don't know typically in a timely way. Um, but I, even, honestly, say, I, I just uh, think it's the threat of torture is good enough for me. Can I jump from this to something? So cause I think it's, yeah. it is related. I'm, I'm very interested to hear uh, your opinion on it. So sure. uh, I've been a big supporter for a long time now, actually, before it was fashionable that Susan Rice. Of torture? No. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, some people might say this, this podcast is torture. But uh, of Susan Rice <laughs> um, being Biden's running mate. Because I feel like uh, she's the real deal. You know, she's been in there. She's qualified. She could do the job on, which is totally possible. We, we may need somebody to do the job on on January January twenty first. No, yeah. January twentieth. Yeah, Biden <laughs> might die. Man, Biden might die January nineteenth. Yeah. And um and uh, to be blunt, I mean she's she's a person of color, but she's not. Nobody could take her for any kind of affirmative action choice. She's um she's she's the real deal. She rose yeah, yeah. to the top. And she's ready to do the job day one. Uh, she might even be more qualified than Joe Biden. But the other person that people seem to like is Kamala Harris. And I want to get your take on this because I don't understand why she's not disqualified based on the following. I mean, truly disqualified um, and, uh, and, and where partisanship really should end. So there was an article in the New York Times. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to base my argument presuming that it's true. Okay. If it's not, if it's not true, obviously it's not. Where they talk about her prosec- record as a prosecutor, and uh, the link is there, but it says, uh, time after time, when progressives urge you to embrace criminal justice reforms, district attorney, and then state's attorney general, Ms. Harris, opposed them or stayed silent. But here, most troubling, Ms. Harris fought tooth and nail to uphold wrongful convictions that had been secured through official misconduct that included evidence tampering, false testimony, and the suppression of crucial information by prosecutors. And in my moralistic view of the world, there's a special place in hell for people who do such things, and they should not be anywhere near the White House. This is the stuff of, of viral Netflix documentaries that end with somebody being set free because one of the most evil people in the world chose not to investigate tampered with evidence. And, and we're just sweeping this under the rug because what? Like, why? Like, I, I get it if it's them against Trump and you have a binary choice, so I'm going to hold my nose and vote for she doesn't have to be the nominee. Why would they yeah. go anywhere near somebody who's done such things? So, it, so I, I want to I play the I don't know enough yeah. card. But yeah. if, that, if that characterization <laughs> is 100% true, sure, yeah. right? Like yeah. if she is this arch supervillain. The one thing I'm going to say just from my own experience, like dealing you know, with law enforcement and prosecutors of all kinds, is 
if she's the attorney general of California, she has a docket of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of cases. And so I would want to know, like, those are really aggressive, horrible claims to make. But they're in the New York Times. Well, okay, well, then it has to be. No, no, but I'm saying, you presume that they had some bar before they would print such horrible things. But go ahead, go ahead. Well, at least as I'm not I saying read that, I, I, yeah, I yeah, prefaced it by saying that she's, at least I I that she's being on. accused of that. Yeah, I prefaced, I, it by, I prefaced it by saying I don't know if it's true. So let me just yeah. say that with such an outlandish accusation, let's put it in the moral universe of child molestation, which I don't think is a ridiculous moral universe to put in. To put it in, it's certainly way, it, way, way worse than anything Al Franken was accused of when he resigned without any real investigation, right? Yeah. So and I'm it wouldn't be that, disqualifying if you were an Alabama Senate candidate. That's right. Anyway. <laughs> no, actually, it's, it's worse than what he was. Anyway, it, it's, it, it's, it's in a very bad. So let's just say that it's kind of outrage that the press is not getting to the bottom of such accusations, particularly if the New York Times found them credible enough to run them at all. Um, yeah. the, it's, it's, and it, it really is an evidence of a kind of hyper-partisanship that somebody is accused of really, really bad shit. They say, well, yeah, we can have her as vice president. Like, we don't really believe all the stuff we say we care about as long as it's not a Democrat, you know. You know yeah. So I, don't, I, I don't know if you read today, uh, Biden uh, decided he's gonna uh, delay the nomination from August because it was supposed to be Saturday. He said he's gonna do it in the 17th instead. No, whatever. Interesting. Still, it's still, it's still, thinking about i think she's out of the uh his short list she doesn't help him stacy abrams helps him no she doesn't Kamala Harris doesn't help him stacy abrams hurts him georgia stacy abrams hurts him yeah she's not gonna win anything for him you need somebody who's gonna win something can i say something about 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 just a back about about the torture thing yeah Uh, because uh you know uh, i i 100 think that the torture is just gonna get you people to say what you want them to say especially Especially these days, I, I think especially this generation, like any one of us, I don't know about you guys, but I know <laughs> that anyone, I'm, I'm going to say whatever they want, you know. <laughs> and, and because there is a lot of torture in Egypt, we, uh, we have a joke. Can I tell you an Egyptian joke? So yeah. there is, uh, there is a, a competition, an American force, Egyptian force, and Chinese force. And there's like, you have to go and get rabbit, okay? So the American go first to the desert, he comes back after two days with the rabbit, you know, under uh, an air-conditioned uh, room uh, with meals and everything. The Chinese come after three hours, you know, with the rabbit, and but it's dead, he blew it, you know. And then the Egyptian comes after five minutes with a fox, and he's like, what is this? He's like, well, he confessed he's a rabbit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, so- I like that, I'm gonna use that. I'm gonna steal yeah. that joke. That's yeah, a good yeah. joke. It's better. So, it's better in Egyptian, by the way. It is. It is. <laughs> and and smartly, so we don't cut it. And out. I have a funny feeling he changed one of the nationalities away from Jewish. Say, I was just gonna say that for the, for the sake of this joke to be aired in this podcast, I, I know it. <laughs> I took Israel out of it. <laughs> it actually was a Jewish joke. <laughs> By the way, can we get back to Biden for a second? Because I, I think yeah. everybody's getting it wrong. I think that the best, the, actually the best running mate would be Klobuchar, which is obviously she's out of the running because she's white and because she's from Minnesota. But I think that if you understand that, that but Biden like, to, has to, I was yeah. Biden like, has talk to about win. This, what? Yeah, sorry. No, go no, ahead. No. Sorry, finish it. Finish Biden has to win 
uh, in those few swing states where Trump swung the white working class voters from Obama to Trump. And um, so and I, there's a New York Times poll which came out, and I'll show you this, I have it here, which is really interesting because it just shows kind of when Barry Weiss said that Twitter has become the um, editor of the New York Times, Twitter's become <laughs> the editor, Twitter has become the editor of liberal opinion. So here's this poll which said, do you think uh, Biden should select a vice president who was white, who was black, or do you think the race shouldn't be a factor? So look, very liberal say um, 37% should be uh, black and goes up basically 50% if you take completely undecided. Postgraduate, somewhat liberal. Down here, all voters in swing states, 9%. <laughs> black voters in swing states, 6%. So overwhelmingly, the voters in swing, in swing states, they're not saying they don't want a black candidate. They're saying, we don't care if she's black or not, we want the best candidate. And obviously somebody like mm. Klobuchar, who appeals very well to a to a yeah know, there's some there's something going on with that poll though i mean because look at the bottom of it uh very conservative got I'm, yeah, of very, course conservative. very conservative we're yeah, going to be they, most they, open-minded because no, they're not going to vote for biden no the very the conservatives say <laughs> it shouldn't be conservatives well unfortunately the world is flipped conservatives are the most likely to say race shouldn't be a factor in something but and of course in my lifetime we went really well, it used to be twenty when we were kids. Even though all well, they're, they're the most likely to say that. No, no, no. Well, this is, that. Can't, no, they're, they're the most. They're the most likely to. Well, you know, there's. A, we've learned a lesson about um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, not, not amalgamations. Uh, what do you call it when you mix the statistics together? Integration. Okay. No, anyway. When, anyway, when you when you take a, a mixture and you and you put them all into one statistic, they mix conservatives like me with conservatives like Jerry Falwell to come up with some kind of average score on what conservatives think about whatever it is. And it's meaningless, you know, obviously. Uh, but then what's your common ground? If you both call yourself conservatives, well, the common ground common may ground? be that the common ground may be that we agree on, on, on some issues and not agree on other. What, what, what issues? Well, what for issues? instance, I, I, I interviewed uh, some editors from reason magazine who, who strongly believe in the Second Amendment, just like the evangelicals. They also happen to think the evangelicals are a bunch of nuts, but they, they agree. They agree with them on whatever. They, they might agree with the evangelicals on evangelical rights, even though they think religion is... So, I mean, let's not get into that. The, the point is that... Um, Why don't you what holds conservatives together? Listen, who is most likely to say that Asians... Asian, being Asian should not in any sense be a factor to college admissions. Obviously, conservatives, that's my point. Liberals are not going to say that. The, the, um, used to be when we were kids, when we talk about affirmative action, people would bend, bend their backs to say, listen, I don't mean quotas. We all agree quotas are wrong, but we just want to make sure that everybody gets a fair shake. And if all things being equal, we want to give a nod to that. That used to be the standard line. Now, we're pretty much at a point where if you don't say you believe in quotas, you might be a racist. So it and I'm not, I'm not getting into the merits of that argument. I'm just saying it's shifted. And it's left conservatives behind who say, no, I still kind of believe in that old-fashioned idea that the goal is to treat everybody the same. Um, I, don't, I would like to have the best candidate for vice president. I don't care what color it is. Now, as I have said all I, that- so can, I, can I push back on the idea that you know, colorblindness and desire- well, last, sentence, last, yeah, last yeah. sentence, having said all that, I think Susan Rice fits both or, or to satisfy both camps. Go ahead. Yeah. No, but I was just going to say, I don't, I, I kind of think 
you know, I mean, don't just don't necessarily buy, you know, I mean, the the sort of the Twitter mobs, you know, sort of hysterics as representative of even liberal opinion. Right. Oh. Because I you know, look at that poll when you even have self-described very liberal Democrats saying a third, you know, I mean, only what, what about two thirds or so, or at least half of extremely liberal. So the Twitterati Democrats saying, you know, we should have, you should, it should be colorblind, right? We want a woman for any number of reasons, but the, you know, colorblindness is still a value we support. You know, I don't think we need to think, I, I don't think we, I, I think it's an overgeneralization to say that liberal politics writ large, that there are these vast majorities that every liberal is, <laughs> is sort of in this kind of camp of, you know, of strong identity politics. I agree um, with you. I agree with you. Uh, but but the le- as I said, I said Twitter has become the editor of of liberalism, which is w- what Barry Weiss was saying is not that everybody feels this way in the New York Times, it's that the, we bend to Twitter and 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 the 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 machinery of the Democratic Party is bending to this. Even though I think I agree with you that it's a it's a substantial opinion in the party, it's probably not the majority opinion. I don't think Biden feels that way, but he's going to bend to it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. Yeah, I, I think it's a loud opinion. I don't even know how substantial of an opinion it is. I'm sure some people hold it, but I think there's a sense in which, I think there are two senses, actually. I think there's a sense in which, you know, we people just need to have a little more intestinal fortitude, not always given to the loudest voice in the room. Um, and so if I had a criticism of sort of Barry Weiss, for example, leaving the New York Times, it's the, well, I'm taking my bat and ball and going home because people are mean to me. And I'm like, you're a pugilist, right? You're you're putting opinions out there that you know are going to provoke angry reactions, and then you're you're shocked and appalled and getting the vapors at the idea that someone might have an angry reaction towards you. So, yeah. You know, so, but I and I think that goes both ways. Um, no, I want to say in Barry's. I, I know. Just, let me let me also let me also just add this one last point though, is I think there is a move, there's an opportunity for political leadership on these issues too, and you know maybe that's something we can you know be concerned legitimately about with Biden is what. Is he willing to actually take leadership positions that people are ultimately going to agree with? You know, look, look at like Trump, whatever else you want to say about him, he is able to lead his flock. His flock shrinks day by day, and he's doing a good job of helping to kill a lot of people. You know, very very interestingly, you know, to this point, uh, I don't know if you heard the story when Obama uh, visited uh, the campaign, and he told, uh, and he said, like, uh, he uh, told his advisor, Biden advisors that I don't want to come more because I don't want to take the light of of Biden and they're like by all means take it yeah yeah okay. <laughs> take know, my that, light please yeah that's crazy though like but you're right he's not the he's running on being Obama's vice president you know uh, before yeah. we well, he's running the, on being not Trump right he's, yeah, uh, yeah. He's oh, that's yeah. pretty good saying. that's pretty good campaign though <laughs> it's a great campaign right <laughs> yeah. so what, what Michelle what's your prediction before we go back wait to wait wait I want I have to say I say one thing. I always want to speak up for, for Barry Weiss, who I know a little bit personally, and I know some of the other people involved in some of these things. And it's, it's way worse than just people being mean to them. That is not the primary thing that's uh, bothering them. It's literally whether or not they, they can still write freely. So Andrew Sullivan was fired from New York Magazine. And... Uh, some other people have been fired or, or censored, and these some of these columnists now are writing with one eye towards, uh-oh, this could get me fired. Well, I mean, when, when people at the Times, some of whom I know, 
saw what happened to Bennett, not initially, but only when Twitter spoke up, when the, the publisher, Barry White, flipped 180 degrees and went from defending it to the, that, I mean, you're, you're, you, everybody can imagine, all of a sudden you're like, oh shit, I need to be extra careful what I do here. And at some point people say to themselves, you know what, I don't want to live this way. I don't want to live this way anymore. And, and then she exposed the whole thing. And, but let's be very clear about Barry Weiss because some of the articles described her as a conservative. She is a left-wing lesbian, uh, uh, left of center on Israel, left of center on virtually everything. I mean, it's not, I don't agree with her on almost anything. Like I'm right of center on most things. She, she wrote, she defended Aziz Ansari. That was one of the things she got in trouble for. I mean, she, calling her a pugilist is weird in a way. I don't mean to insult her anything because most of the opinions that she, that you would describe as her pugilist opinions, I think you and I probably agree with. Like, like this is, like you're surprised when you see the reaction that comes. You don't expect it. If, put it, put it another way, if Barry Weiss is too far right wing, to be comfortable at the New York Times. Think of what the New York Times has become because she is a liberal. So, you know? okay, so can I can I grab she a word that you Trump. just? She hates him. Yeah. Yeah, and because uh, she's a thinking, feeling human being, of course. But no, but she, she doesn't hate him from a right wing <laughs> point of view. She hates no. him from a left wing <laughs> point of view. No, but can I grab a word you just said there, which I, sure. I find I, I gives me the chills every time I hear it, regardless of the political ideology that's using it, is comfortable. Right, like who, especially if you're in the world of ideas, what gives you the right or expectation of being comfortable? You should be uncomfortable, and so that's why I kind why of you found uncomfortable at your at your at your working at your at your company that hired you that that people are going to attack your opinions. Of course, no, that prof- course. That, be, that, that you have be, any that, entitlement to to feeling comfy. It's not about you people attacking. That, it's about professional consequences. It's about being attacked. But she didn't get fired. If she got fired, I'd be a hundred percent behind yeah, you and you her. I'm. She left and complained no, no. that she was essentially in an uncomfortable work environment. And I just no, found that no, to be no. it's when you can't when, when you can no longer do your job. Listen, if you wanted to teach, I don't know, whatever, whatever subject matter, which is hot now, and you want to be one of those professors that has a, has a contrarian opinion, and all of a sudden people are outside protesting and they're circulating petitions and they catch you in some word you say and they put it all over Twitter that you said this word out of kind, whatever it is, they made you, you said like, I, you know what, fuck it, I'm out of here because I need my university to create the atmosphere for me where I can teach, where I can, where I can say what I think. I mean, she, she's not complaining about people criticizing her. She's complaining about people attacking her personally and she's afraid about having to write defensively to not get fired. She's afraid, of, she's, she's complaining about editors who say one thing to her to their, for her face and then turn around and cave publicly to, to another person's face. She's talking about a, a lot of things, and um, she and, and that's all. And that's all. It's like, not what I, you describe. It's not. You're not being. No, but like, I'm, I'm willing to say. I'm willing, like no, but I'm not disagreeing that all of that's fucked up. Like that letter that was put in Harper's. I thought that was a perfectly anodyne, right? It wasn't even controversial. What was in that letter? Yeah. And it, you know, I mean, it set off, you know, I mean, a you know, pretty tumultuous reaction as a response to that. And I found that a little chilling because, you know, standing up for bland statements of freedom of speech shouldn't be all that controversial. But that's freedom of speech, right? That's exactly what I'm standing up for. I'm standing up for the people who say crazy shit that I don't agree with. To and I, Like if you're, you know, some, you know, 
part of some strange religious cult and you think the aliens are going to come down and, you know, save you when a comet goes by. Like, There's enough, enough I, about Trump Michelle, I, I strongly disagree with you. <laughs> do I, I strong- think you're an idiot? Sure. But I don't think, I, you know, I mean, I, I'm going to, I don't think I should, I, I, gotta I don't say, think you have an entitlement to be comfortable when I tell you you're an idiot. I, I, I strongly, strongly, strongly disagree with you. And, and I think that there used to be, obviously we all know it's trite, but it's worth repeating that the constitution doesn't protect private speech. It protects you from government censorship. Not private. However, there used to be a social norm, and it was significant, and social norms are quite important, that put a high tolerance on hearing people disagree with you. And it was a very healthy social norm. So that Pat Buchanan wrote what were pretty clearly anti-Semitic type columns in the New York Post, and then the National Review wrote an article, William Buckley identifying him as an anti-Semite, and yet we still saw his column every week, and really nobody called for him to be fired. He was just severely debated. And certainly nobody attacked him at a restaurant or tried to dox him or, or whatever it was. When I was in college, I saw, I've said this on the show before, I saw in two consecutive weeks, Mayor Kahana speak and Noam Chomsky speak at Tufts. Both, depending on where you are, out, you know, very uh, offensive to a certain group of people. And I went to see both and it was a healthy environment. And that was the norm. The ACLU defended the, the, the Nazis. That, that was and ex- that was a social norm. That was an existence. And that was freedom of speech. Is that what the ACLU does? I never knew what they did. They Hold defend on. Nazis. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was freedom of speech. And now the social norm is quite, 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 quite different. And, and self-censorship is huge right now. Huge. And, if, 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 and it's, I think it's the biggest issue of our time. If there was a fingerprint, like a government agency, which was actually censoring what is now being self-censored, it would be the issue of our times. So people are only human. They want to express their opinions, but if they're going to worry about having their kids threatened, like, like, like my kids were, were threatened when I, Louis, it's like, you know what? I don't have, you're right. It's freedom of speech. They can say what they want. And I, nobody, nobody censored me. I, but I had to go through a major traumatic experience in my life dealing with people, with what free people thought was righteous to come at me with. And that's unprecedented. That's not the way, and I want to be comfortable. I like, what, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't have a right to be comfortable, but I would like to make decisions, express my own opinions. I worry about this podcast every week. What did I say this week that can get me ruined for life? That didn't used to be a concern. <laughs> to recap, the ACLU defends Nazis. I mean, uh, Andrew Sullivan. Last, last Mission to Tokyo is a great book. <laughs> Andrew, Andrew Sullivan. You can say whatever you want about whether he did or not. So when the bell curve came out, he, he published an excerpt of the bell curve, and then he had like 30 different writers comment on it. Not pro, like like a lot of people took it to task. Critiquing it, yeah, yeah, it was yeah. shitty science. And he was and he was proud of that as like well, everybody knew this book was out, so let's air it out in public. If he were to do something like that today, he's done, done. And and so you you know, I, I'll give one more example. We talk about respecting. We talked about this last week. You respect someone's opinion. We, that's a cliche. But what does that mean? So like, if I vote for Trump and I own Goya, you're going to try to ruin me, my company, and everyone who works for me? That's a, that's a change in the social norm. What you're saying there is, yes, you have a right so, to no, vote I, 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 those, those two things are totally different. I'm, no, I'm they're, 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 they're joined at the hip. They're, they're, joined they're not joined at the hip. Having a yeah. corporation that sponsors a political movement that you find to be 
Didn't sponsor damaging him. He, said he personally voted for him. He didn't sponsor the movement. That's an endorsement. That's an express endorsement. What the hell did he? Th- Why did he say it publicly if he didn't want people to take action based on it? No, if he I mean, wanted, he if he, he wanted, thanked, he wanted that endorsement to be there. He thanked Trump the wanted president. That, Trump wanted president. that endorsement to be there to show that he had the endorsement of the guy who who sells Goya, and that therefore he can't be as racist towards Latinos as as people say he is because the guy who owns Goya supports him. And so he, he said that, and I think it's perfectly reasonable for for consumers, if nothing else, for consumers to say, I don't want to support someone who endorses. And isn't isn't a boycotting well, is that's is an interesting peaceful, point. Isn't it a peaceful way of of showing your opinion? Boycotting, right? It's a, it's the it's exactly it's the way we want people to express their opinions, yeah. and that's why I would say even I mean no. Mary Weiss is a million miles from that. People okay, reacting so, negatively to her. So you're making a fair point there. Um, Thank you. He, I'll take that. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> and, and I had and I actually I actually hadn't thought of it. I I might have to re- rethink it a little bit, but let me just say that he he's apparently given um, tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of food to help people, poor people. He goes to the White House and he's, he's you know, they're involved in some charity, whatever it is. And he says, I'm thankful that we have a, a man like President Trump who's a builder as president. And what I'm saying is that- um, A builder of a wall between Mexico and the United no, States. No, he, he didn't say- down building. in hurricanes. No, no, but he didn't say that. Now, now you put it. So, and, I, and what I'm saying is that it, there is some tension between saying, well, I respect people's right to an opinion and saying, I respect the right to opinion, but I want there to be consequences if you have the wrong opinion. It, in the two parties, in a country with a two party system, we ought to be able to tolerate that this company, the guy who owns this company supports this guy and the guy who owns that company supports we that are. guy. We are tolerating without, it. We're just without, to buy without, business. Without yeah, the, and, and you should tolerate my decision to not buy Goyalin. No, what I'm saying, what I'm saying the social, the, but that's not respecting, that's, the social norm is not a healthy social norm to try to extract retribution. And don't forget, it does hurt. I mean, let me, let me tell my example that I said when I was arguing, I said, okay, the people who are going freaking out about this are, are not, they're, they do this online on iPhones made by slave adjacent labor. Like where, yeah. where do they talk? Boycott Apple, if you really want to end misery in the world, boycotting Goya is going to do nothing to anybody except show, show off to your friends. The guy supports Trump. That's what America is about. I mean, uh, even among the founding fathers, some supported Jefferson, some supported Adams, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, some ate Goya beans and some ate Bush's beans. Are are we going? And and of course, nothing stops at once. Now the new norm is let's find out what the owner of this company and let's boycott him. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not what happened. You have Trump and his daughter hawking Goya beans. No, that was afterwards. That was afterwards. That was afterwards. No, it wasn't afterwards. That was afterwards. He stuck his neck into the conversation and he shouldn't be surprised that people are like, oh, it turns out you're racist. I'm not He was at the White House. He was at the White House donating. Listen, that was afterwards. Listen, what's going to happen next? So we're going to find out that, you know, the head of somebody company supports Biden and then the fucking evangelicals are going to want to boycott. And say, where does it end? What, what, like this is, can't anybody see that this cure is way worse than any disease we could possibly think we have, that a country's going to come apart think, if we're going to try to catch people yeah, supporting the other candidate and boycott. Yes, but this is not a formula for anything but disaster. Yes, you have the right to do it. It's mindless. 
No, it, I, it, here's what it's a formula for. Here's what it is a formula for. Yeah. So if you want to engage in, and this is the same point I had you know, with our discussion about Barry White. If you want to ga- engage in political discussion and put your opinions out there, good, please do that. Um, but people are going to be upset if you say something that you know is going to upset people. And, like, and the Goya thing almost seemed like tailor-made to upset as many people as possible. It's like when yeah. Trump was eating that taco salad on Cinco de Mayo, right? It was, it was a deliberate <laughs> thumb in the eye yeah. of the very people who are, you know, I mean, who are going to be the, the most opposed to Donald Trump for the racism, but for caging their Trump, children, for doing Trump, any number of things. Trump has some support in the Spanish community. I know, I know you're aware and, of it. And I've I'm, I'm got to watch out for Godwin's law here, but Hitler had the support of many Jews in Germany. And, <laughs> and, a, and no, it's I, horrifying I and terrifying, but when you, I don't when you think, read about it, it's stunning. Yeah. I, yeah. I I think Godwin's law applies very heavily. I don't I don't I think I think a lot of I think that's hyperbolic. Yeah. I, I, I want it is back, hyperbolic, but you I, know, I, mean, I want to get back. Before. I want to get back to the book though. A uh, couple of things uh, <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. we forgot why we're here. Uh, but it's a nice to say. Why did you name it Last Mission to Tokyo, even though it was the first mission to Tokyo? That- uh, so it's a bit about yeah, it's a bit of a play on that because it's about the aftermath. It's about sort of how the war ends. Uh, and looking back on this first mission to Tokyo. So that was, I didn't come up with the title, full disclosure. My, um, the uh, people at Simon & Schuster came up with the title, as often happens. But I thought it was clever. Uh, and I didn't come up with any better titles. So I, I, I totally supported it. Can, can, I, can I, listen, I, 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 I want to promote the book. I, I think we've done a good job. But, but, I, but, but, but we always argue about stuff. I, I want to say one more thing. Just to tell you that I, I walk the walk. So you might have heard this story. Yasha Mount wrote about in the Atlantic about this guy who owns a an Arabic guy owns a hummus factory somewhere in uh, Minnesota, maybe or in the Midwest somewhere. And turns out his daughter tweeted some horrible anti-Semitic stuff, pro-Hitler stuff 10 years ago. Did you hear about this? And no, I haven't, but I... Yeah. Uh, and they're coming at him, and they're and boycotting... And honestly, she, she retweeted it, but go ahead. They're, <laughs> they're, they're boycotting him, and his contracts have been canceled, and blah, blah, blah. And I reached out to him, and I offered to buy his hummus, because I, I, just, I just don't think this is right. I mean, I, I hope he doesn't have deep anti-Semitic views. It, it um, would be really funny if he said, I don't buy from a Jew. <laughs> I don't sell to you. I, I, don't I hope he doesn't have deeply anti-Semitic views, but uh, I think that it is. It is even. It's a. It's a recipe for even worse to start trying to get people in their views. And, and right. So here's here's I think a line though that I I don't think gets appreciated enough in this debate is that there's a different. There's a conflation of punching up and punching down. Right. The guy who owns the Goya Corporation coming out and full-throatedly endorsing Donald Trump uh, with everything that symbolizes. Boycotting that large multinational corporation is punching up. No, going it's punching after, down. Who's it going to hurt? It's going it's to hurt his workers. Can't, I, it's not going to hurt the guy. The guy but, it's not going to hurt the guy who voted for Trump, that's for sure. Go, going, af, going after some obscure hummus man. Again, I don't know the facts of the story, so I'll just take it on what you said. But going after you know, some obscure local hummus you know, manufacturer for something his daughter retweeted 10 years ago is punching down. That's people just making themselves feel good in their outrage. But I think there is a distinction to be made there. And I think that distinction needs so to be So when they punch at me, is that punching up or punching down? Uh, it depends why they're punching you. Probably. I'm, 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 I mean, I'm being quite serious. So if I say the no, wrong no. thing, <clears throat> that punching up because what you you know I'm okay, always so, 
I'm so always I, wary I of things that have no limiting principles. Uh, I, I, I don't trust that because I don't trust the mob to respect anything that doesn't have a clear, bright line principle. It starts small and then it takes over everything. So, I asked him a question. My punch. Go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. So, so your decision to let Louie back on stage, hundred percent supported that, right? I think it was, I think it was exactly the right decision. I think you did it for all the right reasons. Do I think people who don't, support that for any number of reasons because they have views about louis or and in that whole situation people like that if they didn't come to the comedy cellar are they are they justified in doing that are they you know can they do that is that punching down no i think that's punching up that's saying look we disagree with how you're running your club we don't want to give you money for that purpose okay if it turns out like you know your dad tweeted something 50 years ago and they want to sort of just pillory you you know, I mean, for your attitudes. On, <laughs> they had sweated on, back then. He oh, would have. That's right. Yeah. Well, for your father's you. attitudes on Peru. You know, I yeah, find, that's punching down. That's that's just creating okay. a mob. I, I find that anything that can ruin my life uh, is unacceptable, whether it's punching up or punching down. Anything which can can ruin the life of a worker who's has not even any control or not part of the decision making process that his dumb boss engages in uh, when he votes for Trump is also punching down no but here, I, here I'll, I'll, I respect I'll, I'll try. I just think innocence innocence should not be suffering for their opinions well it doesn't nobody make, should be suffering. That doesn't make any no, sense nobody should be right, suffering but, for their for their participation in the two-party system how, whether they vote for this guy suffer. or that guy the workers aren't but, suffering people are going to eat the same amount of beans they'll just buy them elsewhere so whatever <laughs> yeah, workers for the factory that are selling more beans Tony the yeah, workers are stop eating beans the, they're just going to buy their beans Tony, elsewhere the That's workers all. of the workers of goya will suffer no, yeah, they'll be waiting I, I, for other factors. I have, I have two quick things to well, say. Well, that's not, come on now. That's ridiculous. I, I have two quick things to say. One is, uh, you know, of that's that Louis, Louis CK story. It's like how people are so fake. And I said that before in this podcast. I had this guy that I invited, uh, you know, to the podcast before. And it's like, uh, oh, I won't do it because of Louis CK thing. And I was like, okay, fine, whatever. You know, two weeks later. He calls me, he's like, I'm outside the comment cell, I can't get in. Can you get me in? <laughs> <laughs> so bub publicly, he wants to be publicly yeah. against it, but actually he doesn't. And the yeah. second thing is very important. I don't know if you know guys that they sell Goya in Tokyo. And speaking of Tokyo, this is the last mission in Tokyo. <laughs> Great <laughs> plug. I've very heard about good, this very book. good, Hatsum. Uh, thank you. So I wanted I wanted to ask you when 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 Japan surrendered, you know, uh, some of the terms were you have to give up some of the uh, the, the guys that, that planned uh, Pearl Harbor, right? Why yeah, did yeah. they ask for the guys that tortured the um, uh, the raiders? They did. So it was actually a broad. So this is the the Potsdam Declaration, uh, whose seventy fifth anniversary is actually this week, um, and it's the final surrender terms that Japan had to agree to uh, in order for the United States to essentially end the war. And one of the provisions is that Japan must fully cooperate. Uh, in turning over all women, uh, all war criminals uh, for trial and punishment, and um, so so yeah, that's actually part of, a little bit in this book. I don't I don't go into depth because it's sort of like yeah. that's a, a heavier sort of international law point. Um, did but, they give yeah, the that, general that was, the general that that planned Pearl Harbor? Did they give him up? Uh, Yamamoto. So General Yamamoto was actually uh, killed in sort of the earliest what we would probably call a drone strike, a targeted killing uh, in 1940. Three, if I'm remembering correctly, we found we identified the plane he was on 
uh, and sent an attack squadron of fighter planes essentially just to kill him. So we killed Yamamoto uh, earlier in the war. Um, but no, there were investigations of all sorts of Japanese war criminals. And I, and I talk a little bit about that history in the book just to kind of give readers context. Um, but it was really a remarkable thing to do. I know, I know Noam and I have debated the relative merits of Winston Churchill in the past. Um, but the very I think idea you won. That, um but but the very idea that you'd prosecute people um after a war was a really radical innovation um that you know at least in part draws some of the momentum the public support for the idea actually comes from um president roosevelt demanding justice for the doolittle raiders back in 1943 um and it, it was a really just, you know, kind of novel and risky and, and beautiful idea as well. Um, there was, a, you know, there, there's an apocryphal story um, that Churchill, uh, Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin are sitting around at the Tehran conference uh, talking about what to do with the Nazis after the war. And uh, Stalin, Stalin says, well, why don't we just execute the top 50,000 Nazis? And Roosevelt sort of in his way leans in and says, well, really, wouldn't 49,000 do? Um, <laughs> and so, so, like, this idea of revenge, and Churchill actually supported that. Churchill supported about 5,000. You know, he bid down uh, for 5,000. Neither, you know, Churchill was not a supporter of uh, using war crimes trials after the war. Uh, Stalin kind of came around. He was pretty comfortable with show trials, and that's a lot of what the war crimes trials in the Soviet Union did were. Um, but Roosevelt really fought. Um, at every conference, conference between the major powers. Um, and this was ultimately taken up by Truman in the Potsdam conference to make it really just settled that war crimes trials would be the way uh, that they, we they, assigned responsibility after the war. But they, not, they, not in turning the Japanese, right? That doesn't count. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> that, that's, isn't justice is to have, you know, court on both sides? So, so that, there was uh, early proposals actually to create like an international criminal court uh, in the end of the war. That obviously did not um, happen for many of the you know political realities. So, you know, I'm not going to give you I'm not giving you a rosy picture. Um, I, I'm not I'm not going to give you an unnecessarily sugarcoated picture about what it was like in 1945, 1946. Um, but I think we have to look at history, you know, in its context. You know, the norm the norm for what to have done. Stalin was right right he stalin had history on his side uh when it came to van what do you do with a vanquished enemy uh napoleon got sent on elba so that was kind of a nice compromise um but you know go back to rome you know it was the mass execution of your enemies as publicly as possible to show your victory to, to celebrate their defeat um and so the idea that we would even just deign to temper our power to exact whatever revenge we wanted on our defeated enemies the fact that we were willing to say, no, we're going to give them a trial and we're going to make that trial as fair as we can in 1945 um, is, you know, really just a remarkable advance in human progress that I think just doesn't get remarked upon enough. Um, how innovative, how important, how, how truly wonderful and worthy of celebration that was. You know, the United States did a lot of bad stuff in World War II. Uh, the English did a lot of bad stuff in World War II, the Soviets for sure. Um, but the fact that they, they made this decision to let to win the peace through justice um, is really something that I think we can all be proud of, right? It's yeah. not just an American victory. And look, look how far. Oh, are you saying? I, 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 and this, 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 um, this bears on what we're going through today. Should Lincoln have said, "With charity for none and malice for all"? I mean, we 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 <laughs> learned we learned as kids that Lincoln 
uh, wanted a more gentle reconstruction, and that's part of what made him a great man, and that was part of what was the tragedy of his being assassinated was because the people who took over were, had favored a much harsher reconstruction. And now well, the lesson that's seems entirely to, true, but <laughs> well, that's I mean that's and and now the lesson now the lesson seems to be that the reconstruction wasn't nearly hard enough, and that um, the idea of uh, well, Lincoln actually said hot them with with charity for all and malice for none um, was actually wrong. I mean, uh, we shouldn't we shouldn't have uh, been looking to be charitable to our enemies. Um, well, I think it's a thicket. Know, it's a thicket. You know, it's just there's no good answer to this, in my opinion. Sure, sure. So I think here I'll I'll just give you you know a, a study in contrasts. Um, you know, look at the United States' relations, diplomatic, you know, relations. Who who are two of the United States' at least until the past couple of years? Who are the two of the United Na uh, the United States' strongest, most reliable allies, and not just in a cynical way, right? Who genuinely are the the biggest economies, we trade with them, we have the best relationships in terms of commerce and in terms of communications and entertainment. Who are Saudi, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Not military UK, weapons, yeah. leaving military weapons aside. They pay more than um, anybody. Who, who? It, it's UK Japan and Germany, UK. right? Like really? the, the two, we, we built UK? up them as some of the largest economies in the world and they have been the most resolute allies and most functional members of the international community for most of the post-war period. Right. Um, and it was, you know, through that kind of just, we, we won the peace, right? We, we had the opportunity to dunk on the Germans and the Japanese. There was a plan called the Morgenthau plan that Secretary of Treasury um, endorsed that would have broken Germany up into, I think, five or six different constituent provinces and prevented Germany from ever having any industrial capacity of any kind again to essentially completely agrarianize all of Germany. Um, kind of a salting of the earth, like like uh, the Romans did to Carth Carthage. Um, and that was ultimately rejected. That was rejected in favor of assigning responsibility where it, it most lay through things like war crimes trials. Um, and ultimately the Marshall Plan, right? The effort to, to put Germany back onto its feet, to rehabilitate it, to give it an opportunity to learn from its past and, and become, again, the United States is one, one of the United States' biggest trading partners, one of our most productive and reliable allies, one of the most functional uh, governments in the world. Just look at their COVID numbers compared to ours. Um, and and we did that, right? We did that by asserting our values instead of asserting our power. And it, it, it's a really remarkable story that we should be proud of. We should be, you know, it's kind of sad because of everything that's going on that, you know, the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II is is going, you know, less remarked upon than I think it might otherwise. Um, but it, it is at least an opportunity. Anniversaries do give you that opportunity to look back, you know, with a critical eye at history. And I think certainly looking back from today, you know, the choices that were made in 1945 uh, about how to win the peace were truly, you know, truly revolutionary and remarkable. And we've enjoyed the dividends of that for 75 years. So how do you, not how you explain, but first of all, I, I don't know much about this stuff, including the Civil War. So if I say anything really dumb, just don't, 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 <laughs> oh, attribute, I, <laughs> don't attribute it to, to malice. It's dumbness. But um, one interesting contrast that, I, that between the, the um, Germans and the Japanese, and I did some research into this a couple of years ago when the whole Confederate statute thing first came up, is that the Germans, uh, we've described them on this show, maybe when you were as like a 12-step nation, like the Germans are into full national apology 24-7 and they don't want any part of it. The Japanese still have statues to their war criminals. They still embrace, they still won't, they still won't admit what they did to the Koreans or the Americans or anybody. They, they um, will not give an inch in terms of showing any kind of shame for anything they've ever done. Uh, so and that, that, yeah, that's yeah. gotten 
Both yeah, work. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. So, so that's not entirely or even largely correct when it comes to Japan. Japan's a complicated place, and they have a very complicated history with a lot of their neighbors. Um, so, without get, you know, they without without getting into a lot of the details of that, they do still have statues to these guys. To these, to these. Uh, no, there's something. There's something called the Yasukuni Shrine, um, which is the shrine to Japan's war dead that's existed for hundreds of years, and it's basically how would you describe it? Um, it's a bit, it has a lot of right-wing politics wrapped up in it. I, I went there and researching this book, and it is a bit jarring. So I'm not I'm not disputing what you're saying. I'm just sort of saying as a way of, um, you know, specifying what you're talking about. Um, but I do think, but also Japan has as part of their constitution um, uh, an a, a um, abandonment of war. Article nine of the Japanese constitution prevents Japan from ever engaging in war ever again. Uh, they haven't had a standing military since 1945, and you know, looking to what the problems, certainly that the problems everyone understood to be the most urgent in 1945, right? Japan did have a pretty uh, sober reckoning with its militarized history, such that Article 9, right? So we imposed that, uh, just to give you a little bit of post-war history. When the Japanese constitution was written, um, Douglas MacArthur put that into the Japanese constitution. Um, but it's wildly popular in Japan. Right, Japan is there's not a clamor to to repeal Article Nine and make Japan a you I, know an international. I mean, pariah, we, we, I we wrote that constitution for them, right? But but uh, so let me just put it up as if anybody's interested because it's really pretty fascinating. This is what he's referring to. This is from the Washington Post, although you can't see the masthead. Japan's wartime leaders enshrined the 14 most prominent Japanese who were tried for war criminals at World War II have been enshrined in Tokyo's Yasukuni Shrine, touching off an emotionally charged debate. So this is uh, from 1979, but it apparently it still stands. So that's quite in contrast to the German mentality anyway. It clearly is. It, it is. Yeah, yeah. So Yasuku Detroit, I don't actually believe, is it's not like a government institution, just to be clear. It's a, um, it's like a, it's a, it's a church, if you want to think about it that way in the context. I, I think culturally, uh, you know, it's different in Japan. The, the more of worship people than, than, than a history, you know, so oh, I but, think... But, but, but you, you take that and you take it with the idea they won't they won't admit what they did to the Koreans. They won't admit what they did to the, the Chinese. I mean, I am not painting an unfair picture of a country. You can find something in that constitution we rammed down their throat. But I mean, you, you, you don't see it in the, in a, in the normal expression of but the, just, I, like the Germans. I'm not even criticizing. I'm just I'm just saying. No, yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm not here to defend the yeah. Japanese in World War Two. I just want to make that 100% clear. And the, the, the names are very peaceful. Yamashaki. Like, it's it's so peaceful. It's just like, quite it, a different It's a very mellifluous language, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe the ACLU will branch out and start defending Japanese war criminals. Not just Nazis. <laughs> but but it, what, what it does show is that the um, wholesale uh, abjuration, is that the word? Uh, you know, a uh, 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 wholesale admission of yes, we were evil. Yes, we were wrong. Yes, we were blah blah blah. Is not actually essential to the good behavior and the and the reformed behavior of a people moving forward. It, it in some point we want it for the the victims want it also for their closure. But here the Germans did it, and then the Japanese haven't done it, and yet both are quite humane, good world actors today. That's really. Yeah, but I guess I, my my point was, you know, I mean, not necessarily which country, you know, that have con have either country sort of sufficiently atoned for their own historical misdeeds. Um, I think you could make a lot of arguments, and and this is not, I don't mean this in a moral equivalent sense, but I think there's a lot of a lot of countries have a lot of difficulty doing that, and I think certainly Germany has done far more, really, than any other country 
in terms of you know reckoning with its past in a way that is constructive and productive and, and part of its identity right part of modern german identity is the is the reckoning with its own past and germ and japan is certainly nowhere near that um in, in terms of its own sort of cultural history um my, my point was more my point was more like the to the I think to the broader point is that how do you actually create a peaceful world? Um, you know, I mean, there, there is sometimes a, a tension between peace and justice, but I don't think you can have any peace without justice, right? If, if, if you're only building psych, one cycle of revenge on top of another, you're, you're not going to have a peaceful world. We learned that between World War I and World War II. And I think one of the great human innovations that the end of World War II um, embodied and, and, and realized was that if we deal justly with our enemies, and I'm not talking about what they did, I'm talking about what we did, right? We, we had the opportunity to salt the earth and we, we leveled almost all of Japan um, throughout the war. And, but we, at, the, at the end of the war, we chose the opportunity to make humanity better, to try and get them back on their feet as societies, to, to try and assign blame where it belonged by having things like trials as opposed to just as Stalin said, treating you know the top fifty thousand people is necessarily culpable enough to be executed on site. Um, is that is that the right thing to do right now? But we see one Guantanamo Bay and and treating terrorists like like they're in the hotel rooms. Well, I certainly wouldn't want to stay in a hotel room that was like Guantanamo Bay. Um, well, I've they say they say it, co it costs nine million dollars uh, a year per person. Thirteen million, yeah, and that's not invested in living accommodations i can tell you that was, um, it, was there something that made it easier for the germans because they can blame an ideology that they embraced rather than japan which was just a national ambition kind of or so um so you know I, I i don't know i'm not enough of a german um political you know what i mean right you, yeah you know what I yeah mean. yeah no i i think so i think actually, you are hitting on something that, that's a very interesting distinction between Germany and Japan, is that, you know, places like Germany, places like Italy, you know, were led by charismatic leaders and who embraced an ideology that they um, embodied. And when they died, Italy falls out of the war, right? When, when Hitler dies, Germany's out of the war. Um, when Tojo, the prime minister of Japan, is removed from office in the summer of 1944, the war continues, and and that's mainly because Japan just was not the you know it it was you know a, a complex hyper partisan bureaucratic state, um, and there were you know really deep divisions that were cultural as well as political um, that led Japan to do really horrible things as a consequence. Um, but it was also they they also Japan never really as a political. Japan's politics never became so as profoundly unified um, as they did in places like Germany and Italy. In in Japan, you actually had a, they were a minority, but you had a preservation of basically liberal ideology in the government, including cabinet ministers, uh, like Foreign Minister Togo was famously a liberal internationalist um, and was still in the cabinet. And uh, like Japan's legal profession was largely independent and fought against a lot of Japan's militarism. And there were a lot of cultural, political history reasons for that. Um, but Japan just didn't have the same kind of, as you said, sort of ideology, um, the criminal ideology that was taken over. They had this kind of militarist fascist clique that took over their government 
Um, but it was always a minority clique that just happened to be able to, through a combination of coercion, um, terrorism, and, you know, and, and a certain amount of, you know, appealing to nationalism, um, were able to ultimately take over Japan's government. Um, so sort of Japan's sort of wartime history and culture was, is probably a lot more complicated. Whether or not that changed how they dealt with, how they were able to really reconcile with their own wartime atrocities um, is an interesting study. I, I'm not a sociologist, so I, I wouldn't want to sort of speculate too much. But you know, I mean, it, would, it certainly is worth comparing and contrasting in the sense that Germany, Germany had a clear set of monsters who took over the country and, and dominated the country and put the, put the country under a spell. Um, and you just didn't have that to the same, you had monsters in Japan for sure, um, but you didn't have the same kind of national spell um, that you had in a place like Germany. It's so interesting to me because now this may just be my own prejudice or I might like somehow I feel like I can try to imagine what it was like to be a German in those days, you know, from various points of view. But with, with the Japanese, there's this extra layer of a culture, which is so opaque to me that mm -hmm. I just don't understand the Japanese, especially of, of that era, you know, maybe like maybe today they're more, you know, the world has become smaller. But there's just an extra layer of just, I have no idea what, it, what it's like to think from within a Japanese brain in those days. Like, you know, I, I, I don't know. Yeah, well, if you want to learn more, Last Mission to Tokyo. Yeah, I'm good uh, at that. In bookstores everywhere. Is it available on Amazon? Available everywhere bookstores are sold or everywhere books are sold. Um, yeah, so no, I dig into a little bit of that because I, you know, and this is not something I came to with any, you know, I'm not a, I, I didn't do a PhD in Japanese history. That's not how I came to the story. I came to it even you know, as a, a legal story, really. Um, but one of the things that kind of drove my editor nuts, because I spent a really long time working on it, um, was actually just trying to get into, un to understand Japan better as a country, as a society, because I actually realized I didn't have, I had the same sort of thing. I just didn't have this, I didn't really understand it, right? I, I think I had this kind of schoolboy's thumbnail sketch that, you know, the Japanese were the Asian Nazis um, and that it was that simple and, you know, you didn't have to think more about it. And so in understanding, for example, the fact that they needed to have this goofy compromise uh, where they had to set up a show trial in order to prosecute and then ex and then execute uh, the Doolittle Raiders, um, to me, it was actually kind of a surprise, right? Like, why didn't they just behead them, right? If, you, if it was Germany and they wanted to do it, I don't think, you know, Hitler had very little compunction about hanging people with piano wire. Um, why, why did they get so legalistic? And so really in trying to understand that process, um, I was able to, you know, really just unpack a lot of Japanese history um, from that period with a lot more, um, and hopefully get a lot more sophisticated about it myself. Um, and I, I think readers too, hopefully will appreciate that as well. I, I mean, we, there's a tendency, I think, to, to expect history to be very black and white um, and very cut and dry and very simplistic. Um, and so one of the things I tried to do in this history was to, you know, really unpack what it was, what it was like uh, to be in Japan. Um, and I think one of the most disturbing, just as a sort of final thought before I ramble on too long, one of the most disturbing aspects of it for me, and I, so I was doing this research, you know, early, early on in this project, which was like over five years ago. So before Trump was the president. Um, and one of the things that kind of I was noticing and finding really disturbing was that, you know, Japan had become this just really viciously divided partisan society um, where you had, you know, uh, you know, massive innovation in agriculture, which essentially had a devastating effect on employment in the agrarian parts of Japan. 
you had simultaneously a lot of modern innovations that led urban Japanese to be, you know, extremely modern. Um, you know, I mean, they were some of the most sort of worldly, sophisticated, international thinking types of people in the world. Um, and, you know, and thought of Japan as, you know, the, a model state for the rest of the world, right? A leader amongst, you know, uh, other countries in terms of things like international law and diplomacy uh, and culture. Um, and, you know, how those mutual resentments ultimately end up getting worked out over the 1930s is that the, the sort of people who are left behind um, deeply resent the liberal urban elites in Japan. Um, and the, what makes that extremely dangerous in Japan is that those sort of revanchist elements, the people who are looking to, you know, to borrow a phrase, to make Japan great again, um, <laughs> they're the army. Uh, they form, you know, the basis of Japan's army and the army itself becomes a kind of political constituency uh, inside of Japan. There, there are numerous coups, including a really severe coup in which the, the, I think the twin brother of the prime minister is killed by it. They, thinking it's the prime minister in 1936. Um, and so throughout the 1930s, Japan's government is progressively more and more destabilized by these really just hardcore reactionary elements um, that then ultimately do take over society and, and, and lead to you know, the, the Sino-Japanese War in 1937, uh, and then ultimately the attack on Pearl Harbor in World War II that we know today. Um, and so, again, long, long way to get to this point, but um, it, to me, that was the understanding that trying to understand that history better and, and really understanding its nuances to me was really startling um, and also, you know, revealing. It's, a, it's an important cautionary tale that you can have a government full of really well-meaning people uh, who nevertheless become complicit or party to really horrible things because of partisan compromise. Um, and so uh, there's a little bit of that in the book um, as, I, as I try to explain how things like the Duo Raiders uh, trial ultimately takes place. Um, but to me, that was actually one of the more kind of just fascinating opportunities that researching this book gave me was to understand that dynamic much better because it's not something we're frequently taught in the United States. Oh, did you, did you ever, um, this is so interesting. Did you ever read, um, what was it? Memoirs of a Geisha? Uh, no, I haven't actually. Is it good? Uh, well, I mean, I read it a long time ago. It's a classic, I, but I haven't. Yeah, yeah. I really liked it. And I, but it's written by a white guy. But I, and now maybe in this day and age, he couldn't, he couldn't even dare to write such a book. But apparently at the time, I remember reading um, or hearing some uh, Asian people or Japanese people commenting on how remarkable he was in getting inside the head. Like apparently he really, to the Asian ear, or the Japanese ear, he was actually understanding what he was writing about, hmm. which um, always impressed me about that. Um, and uh, it's, I recommend that book i recommend it to you actually cool. you yeah, probably yeah. really no, enjoy it good. i mean it's a yeah. little bit of a love story novel but it, it's it's really good it's really good so there's actually even a love story in last mission to tokyo if i can really? <laughs> no 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 I, I can still cancel my order <laughs> <laughs> the love triangle no less oh yeah. brother no i i are you planning any future uh book tour or, or is that on hold now uh, well, because of COVID, there are no book tours anymore, uh, as you might expect. Um, but people who want to sign book, I really do enjoy this, and uh, we got these gorgeous book plates made. So uh, if you want, if you want, if you get the book and want it signed, uh, just send an email with your name, address, uh, and any like special instructions, like who you want me to sign it to, to contact at michelleparody.com, M-I-C-H-E-L 
P-A-R-A-D-I-S.com. Um, and, uh, and I'll send you one because they're, you know, hopefully it's a little something. Um, and we'll, we'll have that address in the description of the show for anybody. You cool. Want to yeah. Yeah. That'd be yeah. great. Um, and yeah. And, and, uh, you know, otherwise I'm just going to keep doing uh, like podcasts and discussions like this, which are like just a lot of fun. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, well, uh, Norm, any other questions? No, I, I was just trying to look for some, but you, you know that, uh, 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 John McWhorter, who is, he's your colleague at Columbia, right? Yeah, yeah, he's a really eminent linguist, actually. Yeah, so he 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 had tweeted out and he's discussed that 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 every single day he hears from a colleague complaining that he they feel they can't do their jobs now um, unencumbered, and he got challenged on it, and then he said he's immediately had an he has he has over 140 emails or something now. Maybe it's just not from colleagues at Columbia, but I just want to alert you to the fact that people who do have um, contrarian opinions. Uh, don't see it the way people whose opinions are quite well tolerated. Uh, you know, anyway, I can, I can send you that. Uh, McMorder yeah, send me that. Yeah, please do. Yeah. Cause I have an utmost respect for him. He's one of the great, great linguists. Oh, well, I gotta tell you. So, so John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry. Now John McWhorter is a, um, I'd say he's a centrist, but a centrist, uh, a, a black centrist on racial issues can make him appear conservative in terms of that universe. But I would say he's, He's not a, he's, I'd say, I'd say he considers himself a liberal. And then he, he has this thing on blogging heads TV where quite often, almost once a week or once every two weeks, he has a conversation with Glenn Lowry, who's a bona fide black conservative. And these conversations are so fantastic. <laughs> and, and one of the reasons I noticed they're fantastic, it seems to me, is because both these guys are black. They, they have total self-confidence to talk about these issues without the worry of, did I say the wrong thing? Do I have to? So the, the prose or the language is so unencumbered with disclaimers and explanations and don't take it the wrong way. It's like a, a hot air balloon with no ballast on it. You know, they just soar <laughs> like a hawk and they yeah. just talk about these things back and forth freely. Um, in a way that no white intellectual can touch them on. So I would really recommend to anybody, and they talk about, uh, and they disagree on most things on the, you know, what happened in Minnesota and, and basically every racial issue and, and Robin D'Angelo and all of it. And on most of it, uh, uh, McWhorter is, um, you know, to the left, but not totally to the left. And, and Lowry is, is very right wing. But my God, the intellect and just the, so impressive the way these guys discuss and i also noticed the same phenomenon in some of the um black mayors i saw the black mayor richmond uh, do a press conference the other day and he was talking about some white supremacists who were hiding as uh as black lives matters protesters and it may have uh, been involved in like um stoking the riots a little bit which was bad enough but then there was also then he came to talking about the law breaking and he was so clear, we're gonna hunt down these people who've broken the law and these vandals. And it was his utter self-confidence that a black mayor had to talk about a zero tolerance for this stuff, that these white mayors twist themselves into knots because they're so worried about saying the wrong thing. Ilhan Omar, of all people, if you look it up, spoke beautifully, beautifully lashing out at the people who were destroying uh, neighborhoods in black neighborhoods, you know, stores and stuff in, in Minnesota. Again, now she's not someone I normally agree with on things, but it's just, it's just, it's just quite interesting that I've seen it enough times to see how people who don't feel 
tied down by a million little strings uh, on this subject are able to talk about it so much better, so much more clearly, and so, and so much more persuasively. So I would really recommend um, some of these conversations. John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry, really, really good. Can, can uh, I make a defense for hedging and qualifying? Because that's like what I do as a lawyer and a scholar choice. all the time. Go ahead. <laughs> is, <laughs> well, no, but is, you know, I mean, as, you know, I mean, as a white dude, I've really never worried about being, even having a negative interaction with the police, right? Like I, and so I don't know that it's always wrong. I'm not, you know, I think you can certainly take it to an extreme and I can think of, and you and I can both think of politicians who, who take it to this sort of cartoonish extreme. But I don't think it is always wrong for people like me who are white and enjoy, you know, I'm going to use again a loaded word, but enjoy the privilege of not having to be afraid of the police most of the time um, to just hesitate before I talk because I may be saying something that is a product of my, like, I'm just, maybe I'm not thinking precisely enough, no, right? No, I'm Michelle, just taking too much for granted. Michelle, I, I, I don't, I didn't, I didn't mean to be unclear. I, I don't. No, 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 I, 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 no, no, like, no, I get it. I'm saying, I think I agree with you. I, I describe them as being self-confident and that's, yeah. and that, yeah, that, and that's what I mean. They, 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 yes, I, I, I hedged too. And, and, um, and if I was speaking about the Holocaust, I would speak with, with a lack of care that you might speak, you know, but part of it is just a hyper concern with not a hyper concern, a very real rational concern for somebody trying to catch you saying the wrong thing. But absolutely, yeah. you have to have it. There's also a humility that one has to have talking about an issue that affects black people from your experience as a white person. I, I agree with you a thousand, a thousand percent. I, I, yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, and I, yeah. no, I, I, and I like that humility. I think, you know, we need to, we need to think more about humility, you know, and less of sort of bad faith shame. And, 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 and I think I, I think you have to be also successful to worry about losing something, because if you're a loser, you can say whatever you want as well. You know, not happen to you. <laughs> Michelle, I wonder who uh, who who did your audio, because you have a great voice. Did you read the book? Pretty, um, I, I haven't heard it yet. Um, it's a guy named Roy. Ah, yeah, I should know this. I don't know this about me. I haven't actually gotten a chance to listen to it yet. Um, Why didn't you do it yourself? Uh, I don't know. They, they actually they did give me one part, which I really came to like regret a lot of the writing of the book where uh, when they were doing the audio book, they sent me a list of like 200 words to pronounce, including like a lot of Japanese and Russian and Chinese words. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I can pronounce these words any better than you can. But, um, but that's, that's the extent of it. Yeah. Well, excellent. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's uh, it's a great book. Like like I really cannot wait to finish it. Oh, this was uh, such a good podcast, Hatem. I got mad at Hatem because yesterday or day before you were going off air. Say it off air. Right. <laughs> say the story. When, <laughs> say the story when uh, when. Uh, well, Tony, you want to share your information? Yeah, don't follow me because I'll, I'll I'll be uh, reading uh, Last Mission to Tokyo. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, M Michelle, you want to share um, your information and uh... sure, yeah, I, uh, like I, you can follow me on Twitter if you want. MD Parody P A R A D I S. Um, but go out and buy Last Mission to Tokyo. I think it's a good book with a lot of really good lessons, and hopefully, it you know puts you in a headspace that's a little more uh, hopeful and refreshing than we've been living in for the past. And, and I, can, I can I cannot wait to have another podcast when we discuss which is better, the movie or the book. <laughs> 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 I'm Comedy Seller, uh, hopefully uh, very soon. Oh, I stopped by the other day, no, the Comedy Seller. Yeah. Pay hey, your last uh, respects. 
Love it. Love it. Yes, I did. Well, guys, thank you so much. We're going to get off air so no one can tell you the story why he got mad at me. And live from America. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's okay. 